Welcome to It Starts Within, a podcast from Platinum Performance, where we'll dive into the health challenges faced by veterinarians and horse owners alike. Join us for inspiring stories about the latest advancements in equine care, treatments, and comebacks. You'll hear interviews with elite competitors, innovative researchers, and the veterinarians that devote their lives to horses and the humans that love them. At Platinum Performance, we know the power of nutrition starts within. Hello, all, and welcome to this episode of It Starts Within. I'm Jesse Bengoa, and I am so happy to have you here with me to hear today's guest. He is not only uh, one of the most respected and sought after equine sports medicine practitioners out there, he's one of the first to be board certified in equine sports medicine and rehabilitation. He's a founding member and certified instructor of ISELP, uh, or the International Society for Equine Locomotor Pathology. Uh, it's a prestigious group of high-level practitioners within the veterinary profession. And if his wake of accomplishments in veterinary medicine wasn't enough, he's a former professional polo player and lifelong horseman in his own right. He, ladies and gentlemen, is the incomparable Dr. Cooper Williams. And aside from all of that, He's just a great guy and someone I'm very happy to call a friend. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Well, I like the friend part, but I'm a little embarrassed by everything else. <laughs> oh, stop. No, you're not. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, it's all true. So that's good. Embarrassed or not, it's all true. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, so anyone who knows you knows that you are a little bit of a geek. Let's be honest, in the best of ways when it comes Proudly. to technology, maybe some other things, but we'll focus on, on the geekiness with technology. Um, but that in your own words, you wear a clerical collar. I love that term in this case, um, when it comes to keeping and teaching a really firm grip on the basics of good veterinary medicine, um, especially when it comes to treating the caliber of sport horses that you treat. Um, and these are high level athletes. And I feel like your message here, it transcends discipline. So whether we're talking English or Western or driving or polo, really, it doesn't matter. These principles hold true. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And we, as you know, in my area, we have just about every discipline that you can think of. So it, it makes it interesting and you get to apply the same principles across the board for each of the disciplines. And the uh, the people really appreciate it, you know that thoroughness. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, like you said, I mean the uh, the the basics are so huge, and it goes back to I remember playing little league baseball, and coaches teaching us the basics, and you have to get those basics down to to have a base for everything. And when we teach, you know, lameness in horses, we we don't want to get away from the basics. There are lots of great technologies out there, as you know. And yes, I'm a self-professed geek, and I love I love all the technology, but I never ever want to lose that base in the whole horse examination. And like you know, you know I I you know we label it that we go in and we like to get a baseline on the entire horse, neck, back, pelvis, all four legs, you know, movement at a walk, you know, on the lunge, under tack, and really get a base because we're going in not to just find one thing and then disappear and they never see us again. We're looking to create a relationship with the client. And it, and nowadays, as you know, the horse industry is a little different. So that it may be a teamwork approach. You may be talking about an owner, a trainer, you know, a, a referral veterinarian, a farrier, 
uh, lots of people that are involved and central to that is your patient. And you, to be fair to the patient, you want to include all of that, but you have to have that baseline exam of the whole horse so that you know the evolution of conditions over time. If you don't have that, it can be a little haphazard. You go in, get your baseline, and then as things change over time and evolve and you treat things, you look at you know the, the evolution of that patient and the case as you go along. Yeah, I mean, that couldn't be truer. It's true in human medicine and it, it transcends over to equine. Absolutely. And I should have mentioned, you you mentioned where you are. So Dr. Williams uh, founded Equine Sports Medicine of Maryland. So he is back uh, in Maryland is where you're located. Um, but really, you're all over the place. Let's be honest. Um, consulting on cases, you have a second, third, fourth opinion type practice. Um, and we're excited to talk to you today, or I'm excited to talk to you today. Um, and listen to to really what the whole horse examination means. When we say whole horse, I feel like a lot of people take for granted that when you have an injury, you don't just necessarily have a deep digital flexor tendon injury. That that tendon is attached to an animal. And a lot of the times there's there's so many things that are interrelated within the horse. So if you've got unchecked systemic inflammation or you have something happening with the immune system or whatever it might be, um, I think a lot of people who have more um, of a of an approach to to medicine that that maybe of yesteryear don't necessarily look at the entire animal um, and take into consideration what may have been causing this injury or disease to manifest in the way that it is. So I love your approach to really treating the horse, not just the leg or the foot or whatever the injury may be. So let's dive in. Um, to how you evaluate these horses and this art of the whole horse examination, because it really is so. Um, it sounds so simple and so straightforward, but there's so much that goes into it and that needs to remain, as you said, the pillar that holds up the rest of what veterinarians have in their toolbox, the technology, the imaging, the additional diagnostics and what have you. So why is it so important and why are you so adamant that this doesn't become a lost art? Well, being a veterinarian that goes in to look at second, third, and fourth opinion type things, I see a lot of the things that get missed. And in that aspect, you know, I I want to stand up for my fellow veterinarians and reinforce the fact that this didn't have to be missed. Um, it can be, it doesn't have to be just because you don't know how to ultrasound a certain thing or whatever it may be. You know, you need to go in and do a physical, a thorough physical examination, listen to the heart and lungs and look at the eyes, look in the mouth, look at the general condition of the horse. Is it overweight? Is it fit? Is it, you know, we, I wear, again, the clerical collar when it comes to metabolic and weight issues with horses, because you don't want a sumo ballet athlete. It, those two things don't match up. And it's amazing to me how many horses are overweight or have metabolic issues and they need, and metabolic can also tie into a lot of connective tissue problems. So you have to pay attention to all of those things. And so we also, as, as the type of practice we have, it's not all lameness that we're going to see. There are a lot of performance issues and performance issues can come under a lot of headings. You know, a lot of it is behavior related, just not performing up to snuff and without a lameness. And so a lot of those are axial skeletal. And so that's neck, back, pelvis. And 
So you need to pay attention to the entire horse, not just legs, neck, back, pelvis, play in. And like you, you mentioned deep flexor tendon. We had a horse the other day that had a deep flexor tendon injury and we evaluated it. But I started questioning and looking at the rest of the horse and questioning the owner. And we tracked down a high end problem that ended up being a fairly significant pelvic issue. We ended up treating the pelvic issue because these horses are getting off of one thing and getting heavy on others. And I'm not, I can't draw a straight line and objectively say the deep flexor was due to the hind end problem, but it's likely that it played a big part in what happened. And sure. if you, if you don't maintain the rest of the horse, they're going to re-injure what you're trying to rehabilitate to bring back. So when you, tr when you have a significant injury, it's always a good idea to know what other things may play into what made that happen. It could have been just that, but oftentimes it's interrelated to a lot of other things. Yeah. So we do, we do a lot of hands-on. We palpate every square inch of the horse and do manipulations and mobilizations and lots of little sort of tests that we know that can be related to certain parts of the body so that we gather all that information and we record it all. So, you know, my technicians are right there and we're, we're putting it all down so that the client gets that they know what their horse has at that moment and everything that's going on. And we, you, you've heard me talk about this before, but we feed the funnel. So we have, you know, static and dynamic information that goes into that funnel and it funnels down to where we make decisions about where, where are we going to image or do we need other things to, to be able to localize a problem besides just the palpations, manipulations, and mobilizations, and then try to make very objective decisions about the type of imaging that we might do or, or treatments or whatever it may be. But, you know, as you know, too, I mean, I have a little bit of a pet peeve about people going right to CT or MRI or bone scans. These are really good tools and I love them and I'd like to incorporate them into what I do, but there's so much you can do as a veterinarian to, to help your client localize these problems before you ever proceed to those tools. Oh my goodness. You know? I mean, that funnel of information, I, I have heard you talk about that and, and seen it, you know, in person. And I think it's fascinating. It's, it's so simple yet so complex at the same time. And each piece of information kind of takes you to that next step, which the, can then take you to zig or zag right or left, you know, depending on, on what it tells you. So um, let's break that down kind of from start to finish, if you don't mind, you know, taking us through the steps. So let's start at, and I, you have a unique perspective, interesting perspective, true perspective, I think on medical history. Let's start there. I mean, before you ever see the patient, you are gathering, like I said, you've got a second, third, fourth opinion type practice. So this horse has typically been seen by someone else. Um, it's being elevated to your care for your, for your opinion on it. So you're gathering the existing information, but I love how you are very adamant about not being pigeonholed by what you find in that medical history. Tell me a little bit about the medical history in particular. Well, with history, sometimes, oftentimes, we'll start with people calling in to want to set up an appointment. And we'll try to have people email information of what they already have so I can even go through that before we see the patient in front of us. But myself and a lot of our, my friends that do a lot of the similar things, we're pretty adamant about not letting history 
you know, have us create a scenario in our heads and then try to have the information as we go along match what we already dreamed up. And so it's very easy to get trapped into those scenarios where, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, on the phone, I think this is probably what's going on. And when you get the horse in front of you, you kind of, you know, you, you let the information kind of go that direction. And I go into a case purposely blank my mind and just information gather. Um, I certainly have things clicking in my head, but I let all those things add up because when I get a clinical sign or a clue that I think is important, it goes into my list. And then I will look at that list or it'll still be in my head, obviously, to, to be able to make those decisions later on. But it's important to gather, in, you know, history is a huge thing. We have to pay attention to it. It is important. Clients want you to know it. And so, you know, you can't just dismiss it and go, well, I don't want to hear any of that yet. Um, you know, it's it's an integral, it's also a way for you to start to develop a relationship with the client as you're gathering the information and they hear you in a very scientific, methodical way, asking questions that they know are going to be apropos to things. And you've heard me say this one too, where I always ask now, is the horse on analgesics at this point in time? Dr. Williams, I, I have a really brilliant <laughs> list of questions and per usual, you're 10 steps ahead of me too. I would definitely <laughs> want you to talk about analgesics because that blew my mind. It's so simple. But like I said, again, it's, it, it was like a big, well, duh, you know, factor. When I heard you say that you don't even stop to think about how many horses out there, and that's a whole different subject, you know, too many horses out there are on Butte and Banamine or what have you. Equiox, um, Equiox, and they're, they're kept on it when they go to their exam to see, you know, a veterinarian like yourself, um, and you're not necessarily getting an, an accurate portrayal. So no, it could be a waste yeah. of time, not yeah. a total waste, but yeah, it's important. Yeah. So we ask that question. And then the other thing too, it's amazing to me how people think Equiox is not an anti-inflammatory. Horses go on it, they live on it, it never gets question they never, they were never told draw blood to double check that gut function's okay and that you know but uh, the you have to handle these medications carefully and they can't be used uh just willy-nilly i mean you, you you have to keep a handle on them and and just asking you know is your horse on it before i examine it is a real important question but, well, it's like a, it's like an FBI interrogation. It's like, no, no detail is, is unimportant. You know what I mean? And uh, maybe in today's world, maybe I shouldn't have brought up the FBI investigation, whatever, but, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, we, we, it's funny at, at platinum, we have a, a, a human side of our business too. And we always say, you know, give us the down and dirty, you know, we want to know because it's our job to protect you. Um, right. so we, we need to know those things. And, um, it's the same when you go to your own doctor, you know, what are you taking? What's, what's this and what's that? No detail is unimportant. Um, and it's the same thing with the veterinarian. So, um, you know, we've started at the mouth of the funnel, right. You know, with the medical history. And now when you take the next step down, um, you come to that visual examination and it's just amazing, you know, what you're able to gather with your eyes alone as the first step. And, you know, as a horse owner and a client standing next to my veterinarian so many times, it's this, this silent, you know, however long, depending on what's going on, where there's a lot of looking, a lot of touching, not a lot of talking, the veterinarian's observing. Um, and so it's, it's neat to be able to kind of look inside your head and see what's really going on. But let's start with that visual examination and tell me, 
you know, there's a lot here. I've, I've heard you talk about what five or six things that you're really looking for when you're visually Dr. examining a horse. So, you know, first of all, I like to introduce myself to my patient. Obviously, I've already introduced myself to the client, but it's important to get a good relationship going with the horse um, because you're going to be touching and kind of doing things that could piss them off. And they, you may anyway. So anyway, get the relationship going. But you can before you even touch or even talk to the horse, it's very important to get an idea of body posture. Um, the weight of the horse body score is very important. Um, just a general feel for, you know, the fitness of the horse. Certainly, um, when you look at how they're posturing or things that they may doing, um, I also like to watch how they can bend down to, to graze or eat, you know, hay off the ground. Because if a horse has some neck issues or some issues in that cervicothoracobrachial region where you have crossover from the neck into the thorax, they're, you know, they may not be able to graze or bend down properly to eat. And so there's a lot of things that you can get a feel for, you know, what does their neck and back and pelvis, their conformation look like, all of those things. And then, as you know, I really spout the body symmetry thing. So that's when I sort of pull my horse out of the stall. It's important to stand them up on very level ground and get them totally square because you can change how muscles and everything look if you don't have them absolutely square and then i get down on my knees and i look up at the horse's neck and look at you know carefully at the symmetry of everything following down to all the forehand symmetry i get above my patient have their head and neck come down look at the pole and the pole symmetry especially with dressage horses that pole region has a lot of things that can go on it gets ignored a lot and then I go around behind the horse. It is amazing to me how many people have no idea how asymmetrical their horse may be. It's never been pointed out to them. The, the pelvis may be two inches higher on one side. So I will stand directly behind, look at the, the pelvic symmetry and the muscle symmetry to see if there's anything that, uh, so, you know, as you know, I, I call it a history book. It uh, It's a way of gauging how a horse may have used or abused its body and it can't be taken literally, just like any kind of piece of information, but it, they are clues. And, you know, if a horse has asymmetric structure, they're not going to function symmetrically either. And that can also play into how how they develop things. Um, I love that. I've heard you say that before, yeah. um, and it just sums it up so well. Asymmet asymmetric structure leads to asymmetric function. I mean, again, it's it just seems so simple. And and we are, and our patients are all collections of repetitive trauma over life, right? So, so if there are things like asymmetries that play into it even a little bit more, you need to just at least be aware of those. And, you know, and that includes feet. Are the feet symmetrical? And, you know, what does the shoeing look like? And we haven't even gotten into how the horse moves, obviously, but, you know, then we're palpating every part of the horse's body and you've seen me do my mobilization tests where we have certain things that we do to flex and extend the thoracic region of the back the lumbar region of the back we do lateral motion to make them swing back and forth because horses you know they there are two ways that they move they're the most movement in the spine is between t14 and l1 so if you see a horse twist over a jump that's typically where they're twisting from 
but they do have like a 2% movement in the pelvic region. And just like with cuboidal, you know, say the hock, where you have bones that don't move much, the distal joints of the hock, doesn't mean they can't have pain associated with the lower joints, even though they don't move very much. So the same with the pelvis, low movement areas can also have a lot of pain and lateral motion can elucidate that or elicit that. Um, and then flexing and extending the pelvis, um, feeling tail tone. You know, we, uh, you know, we, and then we go, you know, palpate everything joint wise. You know, uh, we have certain function tests that we do like patellar pressure. If you push on the front of the patella that can accentuate femoropatellar joint pain or inflammation. Same thing with the shoulder and the bicipital bursa. All you simply have to do is push on the front of the shoulder where the, the biceps brachii crosses over and there's a bursa there. If there's a bursitis, you will light them up with that simple little test. So there are lots of little isms that we do in all portions of the body that help us elucidate things. It all goes into that funnel that you were talking right. about. And I right. have gotten to see you do this. And it's like the, it's like Dr. Williams comes alive as the combination of a veterinarian, a yoga instructor, a masseuse, and God knows what else when you're doing, when you're doing these, <laughs> these examinations. It's amazing. Um, but you talked a lot about, um, you know, not only body symmetry, but, but body conditions score again, it seems so simple, but it has such a vast impact on the horse in general. And you talked a lot about weight and what their, what their metabolic state is. Why is that? So you touched on it, but why is it so important as far as not only what their metabolic state is and their weight, but what's going into their mouth. And obviously we live in the world of nutrition, um, exactly. but it does get taken for granted a lot of the time, especially in certain disciplines, if we're being honest, you know, they, right. they tend to run heavier and it's seen as, Oh, the horse has, you know, more power and it's happy. And, um, you know, it translates over to human medicine. Again, we now know, you know, the opposite is true. Um, and so tell me how, and I, I feel like it puts veterinarians, especially in a hard position because us as horse owners do not want to hear that our horses are heavy, um, that our horses need to lose weight. Um, and so what, tell me about that from the perspective of a veterinarian, because I think we need to be as horse owners, a little bit more open to hearing our veterinarians try and help us in that way. Well, my clients are very attuned to myself <laughs> and my technicians. We all will talk to people about it, but we, we bring it up in a way that I think is easy to swallow in that we, it'll be a little bit of sort of gently joking about it and, and bringing it about and then addressing it again and again. And, you know, and, and we'll say, we really want to make sure that you understand that we are focusing on this because it's a huge part of what's going on with your animal, especially as they get older, you know, overweight horses are putting that much more stress on their bodies you look at the amount of the number of people in human medicine with bad knees that are overweight. There's a direct association with those kinds of things. And your horse is going to be the same way. And you all focus on nutrition. And I love how educated everybody in your company is about nutrition and the amount of research that Platinum puts forth to objectify everything that they're putting out there. It's not just about selling supplements. You all put a lot behind educating the people that work for you, educating your clients and proving a lot of the things that, that you're putting the supplements out there for. 
But when I go in to see a case and do the whole horse, asking about the nutrition of that horse, what is your horse eating? You know, and that's, you know, that requires everything. What kind of concentrate? What kind of hay? What kind of grazing schedule? Do they wear a muzzle when they go out? Um, do you ever when do any... they go out? When do they graze? Yeah. How much yeah. grazing time do they have? How does your horse behave when he's out on pasture? Is he stargazing or does he have his head down the entire time? Um, you know, and and the uh, and do you have your hay test? Um, why do you have your horse on a on a you know a high sugar type feed? There are lots of feeds. You know the you know what it's like. I mean, everything's very scientific now, and you can you can find things that you can feed to your horse that are much healthier for them than than that what it's typically been over the years. And it's in, very important to know all the supplements that a horse is on as well. It's incredible how much crossover there is with, you know, you'll go into some places and a horse will be getting more supplements than, than they are any kind of other food and they just don't even want to eat it. And you look at everything that they're on and so-and-so told them, oh, you ought to go on this. And they, there was no thought to, well, what's in it? And does that cross over with what I have that I'm already giving? And again, that's what I like about platinum is you all are really good at getting underneath all that and knowing the breakdown of everything that a horse is, is on. And, and I feel very comfortable in passing things to you all saying that, you know, we'll call platinum because you can explain to them what your horse is on supplement wise, and they can really help to guide you and refine this a little bit better. But metabolic function is the other part of that because there are a lot of horses especially these warm bloods that have metabolic abnormalities and they can start out simply and just mildly and then progress as they get stressed over time with improper diets but we do a lot of function testing for metabolic issues and the metabolic panel and you know all this already but we'll spout it obviously you have you know your your sugar issues, insulin, glucose. Um, so you, we don't just measure those. We do the oral sugar test, you know, where you draw blood as a baseline and you uh, administer sugar orally, usually like caro syrup, and you do insulin, gluco glucose before and after. And we look at leptin because that can be an, an early measure of metabolic function, maybe the first thing that's abnormal. Um, and then we do TRH response tests for PPID, you know, equine Cushing's-like syndrome, and for thyroid function. And the thyroid's a little bit more of an issue because you have to draw blood four hours later. But we, when people want all over metabolic testing, that's what we do. We don't just draw baseline levels on anything. I think it's very important to know how the system functions with function testing. Yeah, you bet. I mean, it's, it's incredibly important. I think for so long, um, so many people have understood, oh, you know, too much weight, it's, it's a bad thing, you know, and, and all of this, but it goes so much deeper than that. And I mean, your friend, Dr. Richard Markell, I remember was one of the first that I got to sit down and really dig into how a state of metabolic dysregulation affects tendons, you know, who knew? I mean, obviously you did, but you know, as a, as a horse owner, I think that there's still a lot of gray area around that. We don't quite uh, fully grasp how much of an impact metabolic disorders really do have even on lameness issues, like you said. So, I mean, it goes pretty far and it's something to really look into, not only for our horses, but ourselves, if we're being honest. 
um, that affects a lot of areas. And, you know, bringing up another, another one of your good friends, um, Dr. Benoit, uh, technology, we talked about technology and how it is advancing at a rapid pace, no doubt. But I know that both you and he have always said to me, like, listen, aside from any technology or imaging, that's all great. Your best tool, bar none, are your hands. So let's talk about the physical exam. Let's take another step down that funnel um, and talk about the physical exam. What are you touching, feeling, palpating? And what are the areas of the body that you're investigating? Um, and what are you looking for? Well, it's basically comes down to what do I not touch? Because right? <laughs> there really isn't anything. Yeah. There's really nothing I don't touch. I really put my hands over the entire body looking for textural differences and uh, any kind of irregularities, sensitivities, heat, obviously. Um, but it's important to, to, to be able to put your hands on everything. And we had one today that we went over the entire horse and then the very last limb that we picked up on, horse had very heavy feathering because he's a draft cross, but he had you know very significant uh, suspensory uh, thickening and sensitivity and heat and it was easily missed because of you know the, all the feathering in the limbs it's just not there but you have to put your your hands on everything and touch you know like with joints you know to specify on something like that you're looking for texture of the joint capsule is there fluid distension in a structure um under and we usually grade everything on a one to five basis so as I'm going through everything, I'll tell my technician that he was recording everything that, you know, we have a one out of five in the ankle or a two out of five in the digital tendon sheath. And there's, you know, it, there's definitely some sensitivity here and some heat, or there's a little bit of a fibrous region in that area. Um, I have specific tests that are called apical and basilar tests where I palpate in the insertional areas of the suspensory branches, and then I flex the limb into it. And those are some of those clue type things that I was telling you about. Um, when you palpate tendons and ligaments, it's important to do it lightly the first time and then to gradually increase your pressure so that you're not just big, doing a big squeeze on something and having a worse react. And then you're saying, oh, it's real sensitive. Um, you wanna gradually build up so that the horse trusts you. Um, and you oftentimes will go and compare it to the opposite one if you have a question or if a horse you know, I do retraction and protraction tests of the, the upper limb. Um, and a horse may be a little bit funny about it. You go to do the other leg, check it out, see how it reacts to that. Come back again to the same leg and see if they do it again. Repeatability can be very important in a lot of situations where you feel like you may or may not be getting real information. And I think you've heard me talk about the axial skeletal region. When I'm palpating the back, You've got to be very careful because we've all been on around those horses where they're already anticipating that you're going to do something that they know hurts. And if they are starting to overreact and dance away from you and kind of fly backwards or do any of those things, you're not getting real information at that point. You need to gain that horse's confidence and very gently massage if you have to get into it. And you still may have a horse that is not going to give you real information, but Nothing that you gather really is an acid finding. You have to look at repeatability and make sure that you're you're gleaning that to be a real piece of information 
and see how it fits together with the overall picture because that's the funnel thing is how do all these different clues come together to give you real information if you have an outlier you can say well i'm not sure about this we'll keep that in the back of our minds as we're going on on to other things yeah you um, bet. absolutely you're you're gathering all this information but when combined what does it mean um, right. And I love how, you know, with your physical exam, you're also paying attention, you know, not just on the lameness front, but you're looking at the heart, lungs, mouth, eyes, you know, right. all of these things that you wouldn't make a direct connection to the musculoskeletal uh, system, but, but in fact, it does, does have an impact. Um, yeah, you think of it you know, orally, you know, certainly you can get a lot of behavior issues from something that's going on in the, the oral cavity. Yeah, you bet. So moving down the funnel, you know, another step further, you've observed the horse visually, you've touched it, you've moved it, you've palpated it. Um, you've done a thorough physical examination. Now comes movement. So tell me what you're asking of the horse and the rider when you're observing the horse in motion, you know, walking, trotting, maybe to a lesser extent, loping or cantering and lunging and under saddle, um, you know, you've, I've heard you talk about the importance of including this step, you know, seeing the horse actually doing its job. Um, tell me about that and what you're looking for there. Well, we started out in hand and we like to watch them walk away and back, uh, observing the same gait all the time away and back. I always watch them from the side as well. So then we'll position over to the side so that we can truly look at length of stride and sort of how the back and pelvis move and the neck all move together with the body is there a good spring-like motion as they're doing all this so you try to pay attention to not just limb movements and it's important to do it on if you can on hard ground and on soft ground we like to watch them on a figure eight type of a setting um walking and trotting on a on a small circle again on hard and soft um and there are a whole set of stress tests, I don't call them flexion tests per se, but stress tests where flexions are part of that. And I always separate out the upper limb and the lower limb, because if you just flex the entire limb, there's no way to say, well, you know, it's the ankle or it's the hock or, you know, you can't do that in any way, shape or form anyway, because you're always stressing more than one thing. But we do proximal limb flexions and we do distal limb flexions. And then, you know, with the forelimbs and then with the hind limbs. And with the hind limb, you can put a little more emphasis on the stifle or a little bit more emphasis on the hock, but you can't ever isolate them because they're all connected with, you know, the way the horse is built, especially in the hind limb, the reciprocal apparatus makes it so that everything's moving when you pick up the leg. Um, but when you go to pick up that leg too, you can just sort of get them to pick it up on their own without actually grabbing it in the beginning. If they have something like a peroneus tertius injury, which is one of those structures that makes everything flex together, the stifle and the hock specifically, you will notice that one flexes more, the other is sort of just extending a little bit. So those are subtle little things you look for. Um, but the, you know, all those, and we do a cross limb flexion test, which, you know, I feel is again, an important thing. It's a little bit different than a lot of the other tests. We do extension tests of the carpus and the ankle because just flexing the, the joint doesn't put all the stresses on that may be a problem. When a horse, especially racehorses, that particular discipline, they're hyperextending when they injure their knee or their ankle in most cases. 
And so when you pick up the limb, extend it, and push down on the ankle or push down on the carpus, you're you're hyperextending it in that test. And then you can see how they respond to that. So it's the opposite of what, you know, is the typical thing that's done, but it's important to include both those things. We have a high a proximal suspensory test where we put pressure on the suspensory, you know, at the proximal portion for about a 20 second period of time, and then they jog off. And if they have proximal suspensory disease, that's something that can accentuate. Um, hoof tester tests, where you put hoof testers on, especially across the heels for a period of time and then jog them off. The wedge board tests, all these little things that could be helpful. And then obviously with the lunging that you brought up and we like to watch them go under attack as well. Lunging is important for looking at the axial skeleton as much as it is for limb movement. Um, there are so many things that we look at with you know, the spring-like motion of the, the, the back and pelvis and that transitional region. Um, but the body position, a horse should be a banana shape around the person lunging them. When they start to counterbend or are real straight through the body, or they're putting their hind end in or outside of the circle or their front end in or outside of the circle, those can be clues of axial skeletal problems in most cases. So those are things, again, thrown into that funnel. What, you know, how's this? And then I like to watch the behavior of the horse when it's being tacked up. Is it real girthy? You know, what, what is that horse doing when it's being tacked? And then watch how the horse responds to the rider getting on the horse. And then, you know, watching the horse go under tack at walk, trot, canter. And transitions to me are very important, especially down transitions. So going from a canter to a trot, back up to, to the canter, um, back up to the trot. And uh, those can be clues that are things that will accentuate a lot of stifle issues or pelvic issues in a lot of cases. Um, I also pay attention to how good a rider you have in front of you. Is the rider part of the problem? And there's a political problem. We never want to admit that. It couldn't uh, be us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have to be real gentle about how those I'm sure, are. I'm sure. <laughs> but it's important to know. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, there, there's a lot that goes into that, obviously. And everything that we're describing, obviously, takes a lot of time. And so we do yeah. spend a lot of time with each case. And not every veterinarian has the luxury of doing that. We honed our practice down to being able to really be able to look at every one of those things to to hopefully come up with a final answer for people. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, and I love what you said about watching the horse as it's being tacked up because, you know, we still hear all the time, oh, the horse is just really girthy. He's, you know, grouchy when we tack him up. He tries to bite me every time. It's just his personality. And, you know, we really do think horses are not innately irritable like that. In most cases, um, there's probably something going on there. You know, the, they're trying to give you a sign. They they can't talk to us, but their behavior and their movement and their body can sure talk to us if we're if we're willing to listen. So I think that that's that's very wise. So I had a, a question kind of as I was listening to you, which is, you know, related but not. How often does a neuro exam come into play? Oh, yeah, that's a good question, because that is part of our basics as well. So that is one of the movement. Well, there are some things that we do in hand, like placement tests um, and certainly skin sensitivities, withdrawal responses, those kinds of things. But in the movement section, you know, before we ever totally wrap up, we do spin tests and reverse. If we have slopes available to us, 
I like to see how they walk, you know, handle going up and down slopes, maybe with the head elevated um, can help accentuate things. We'll do obstacle courses in some situations when we have, because there are a lot of horses, you've been around horses long enough to know the sort of the weak hind end syndrome thing. And, you know, that can be very difficult to figure out if a horse is truly just weak, if there's a neurologic, subtle neurologic component to it. Um, but it's important to have that neuro exam be part of the overall, again, because, you know, if a horse evolves into something, you can say, and oftentimes we video a lot of the movement things too, by the way, that's one thing I want to state. When we do the movement things, we have it documented because it is important to be able to come back to that. But the neuro things, if they evolve, if you didn't have a baseline, how do you, how do you know it evolved if you don't have a baseline? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so important. And again, you know, going back to human medicine, it's the same thing there. So um, it's about catching those little things before they become big things. So right. that would be, that would be the ultimate goal and taking another step, you know, down the funnel again, going back to that. Cause I love that visual. Um, so we've talked about the visual examination. First, we talked about medical history, very important, um, you know, but not to, not to focus with tunnel vision on that. We talked about the visual examination, the physical examination. Let's talk about when and where you bring in imaging. Um, and for our listeners, Dr. Williams is regarded, I'll brag on you again, um, really throughout the world as an ultrasound guru. Um, and this imaging tool, um, your command of it is unrivaled and you really have uh, fine-tuned throughout so many years um, how to, with so much accuracy, uh, use the tool of ultrasound. So I want to talk about that. You know, we're not going to ignore the other imaging modalities, but tell me about what ultrasound brings to the table and especially dynamic ultrasound, um, where you're bringing in movement, because I love what you say about that. If it moves, move it, you know, we need to see it. <laughs> so tell me a little move bit about it. that. <laughs> move it, move uh, it. Yeah, exactly. So, well, first of all, you know, we use the, the funnel to make those imaging decisions. And you may go through a period where you need to do blocks to localize something. Sure. Um, and, you know, we can talk about that at some point, but the, once we've localized what we think is where the major problem or problems are, the basic tools that most veterinarians have in the field are radiographs and ultrasound. And I'd say that I think most, you know, equine veterinarians have those tools. So they need to know how to use them thoroughly and properly. And to, to be able to do that, you need to know your anatomy backwards, forwards, inside out, however you, it's important. And it's, you know, I still like to go back and review anatomy and detailed anatomy and, and functional anatomy because the structures that we're imaging, you need to know what you're touching. You need to know how it functions. You need to know what it looks like normally and if, if it's abnormal, is it just uh, a lark? Is it just sort of an artifact that's not important? Or is this an important finding on your imaging? Well, and speaking radio of clerical collars, that's where I yeah. really, right. I mean, that that organization and especially Dr. Jean-Marie Denois, that is, right. that is where they hang their hat is on anatomy and how vitally important it is. I mean, it all starts there, right? It does. And Jean-Marie has been just a godsend to the profession in how much he's elucidated the anatomy, but with imaging. So he, you know, he's used bandsaws to be able to look at 
the horse in every type of you know angle everything that you can imagine that would match it up with the imaging and it's so important to know how that anatomy matches up so that when you're looking at something you truly know what's going on with it and i can't you you can't tout myself enough if you really want to go back and and learn more anatomy functionally and how it matches up with imaging and really get your imaging down it is an organization that is paramount to that i wish i'd learned anatomy that way in school uh, oh really absolutely do. i mean but it's it's yeah. one of those things that half, half of our listeners right now are horse owners and are going to be very sad to hear that ISELP is unfortunately only for veterinarians, but but we can glean that information <laughs> from people like you. So that's good from our veterinarians. And I, I love to, you know me, I mean, I never be quiet. I mean, that's so, you know, my clients get an earful whenever we're going over things. Um, and I encourage clients to really, you know, ask questions when we're looking because that kind of imaging, as you know, is right in front of you. People want to know, well, what are you looking at? You know, and how does that match up? And then, you, you know, you touch the leg over here. And I carry a lot of anatomy specimens around too, because it allows people to see what things look like on the inside. Um, and I teach with those specimens too, but clients like to see them as well. Uh, but going back to the imaging thing, we, we start out with radiographs and ultrasound, complementary imaging. And it's important to use those tools together you know, bo you know, bone obviously is the chief thing we're looking at with a radiograph. And what people don't understand about ultrasound is it's the most sensitive tool for bone surface detail. You think about how sonar maps out the ocean floor. Ultrasound can do that when it's looking through the skin at the, the deeper structures and you get to the bone. You can't look at bone in that way with a radiograph. You just can't because you're looking at if you take a certain view of an ankle, per se, you're looking at the tangents of the bone. You not you know, the surface of the bone is superimposed over everything. So ultrasound allows you to pull that out and look at the surfaces. So not only are we so that ultrasound tool chest that you talk about, there are so many things that go into that. You know, your typical ultrasound machine is able to have a split screen, so you can compare legs. If you have a question about one leg, you look at the opposite. Not that they can't have pathology in both, but you usually have something normal that you can compare to. Uh, the split screen allows you to look at left and right and compare them. It allows you to do what we call image blending, where if you are looking at a structure and you want to see more of it in a length, you can freeze one image, move your probe down, try to match it up exactly with the next, you know, with where you ended up so that you get a long image of that structure and allows you to, to compare that. Um, you can look at symmetry of a lot of structures. So when we get down to the ankle, we'll look at the uh, annular ligament attachments on the sesamoid bone and we get a, a heart-shaped appearance and we can actually have it on the screen where it looks like a heart, but, and not just, we're not trying to just make pretty pictures. We're looking at the symmetry of those two things to see if they're the same. You know, one of these things is not like the other, goes all the way back to Sesame Street. And so right. <laughs> it can be, a, you know, a, yeah, a very useful tool. Um, so write that down, folks. Tool, angle contrast. Very, very useful yeah. tool. So, uh, uh, angle contrast technique is a really important thing that there, I still know a lot of veterinarians that are not up to speed on what that can accomplish for them. Everybody 
I remember the first horses that I ever scanned. You're scanning perpendicular to a structure the way you should to get a tendon or a ligament uh, image, say between the knee and the ankle. And your probe happens to go like a 10 or 15 degrees angle. All of a sudden, everything looks dark except for certain parts. Well, that's not just a lark. That is a tool you can use because if a structure is slightly differently organized, like fibrocartilage or scar tissue in something like a tendon or a ligament, when you do that angle contrasting and dip your probe 10 or 15 degrees, tendons and ligaments go dark, but things like scar tissue remain white or the fibrocartilage edges of things are white. So you get a feel for what's normal and abnormal. And there are certain things like the manica flexorum, which is down near the ankle, uh, sort of a tunnel for the super, superficial digital flexor tendon. You can really light that up by just doing that little angle contrast. The suspensory ligament's a great uh, structure to talk about that way because it's a structure that in evolution was a muscle. So it's it still has vestigial fat and muscle within the ligament tissue because of what it was back in evolution. And so it's left over from evolution. And when you do the angle contrasting, you can see the fat and muscle bundles in there. And if the ligament enlarges, the fat and muscle bundles get compressed and become less visible. And so that is a way to know that that structure is involved. Even if the overall ligament may not look particularly enlarged, you can get a feel for that. So there's a lot of that kind of thing. And, and flexed imaging, you know, flexing the stifle to expose structures that are not visible to you in the standing limb, the meniscal attachments. You know, when you have an ankle, you can you can look at cartilage, but you can in a standing leg, you only get a small portion of it. If you pick up the leg, flex it, you expose more of it. But then going right into the dynamic imaging, the entire body of the horse moves. You have a real-time tool that when you're moving the probe, you can see things moving. When a horse shifts its weight, you can see it move. There are so many things dynamically that can be visualized and used as good information when they're moving. Even facet joints in the neck. You know, we'll, we'll be scanning the facet joints like a lot of people do, but I'll have whoever's holding the horse move the horse's neck back and forth. You can watch it in movement. It actually exposes things a little bit more. You can see it dynamically. You can see how the joint capsule looks, get a little bit more information that way. Um, the ankle region, you know, the flexor tendons as they pass down there, when you have injuries to those areas, you may see real restriction in how those tissues move by each other. So it's important to get normal horses and look at those things, how they look, how they look dynamically, so that when you have an abnormal case, you can go, wow, you know, look at the, the tendon fiber crimps because it's it's adhesed to the tendon next to it. You know, so there's there's so much that we can do that we don't do in a lot of situations. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've barely I'm scratched talking too much. Cooper, this is this is why we're here. This is great. This would be a terrible podcast if you were a mute. So this is wonderful. <laughs> um <laughs> So we barely scratched the surface, you know, like I said, and there's MRI and CT and, you know, we could dug deeper on radiographs, nuclear scintigraphy or bone scan. Um, there's so many of those different imaging modalities that are at your fingertips, depending on what that funnel of information is telling you. Um, but you're bringing each of these things in when the case calls for it, obviously. And this all leads you to deciding, you know, this funnel as it goes down, leads you to deciding the best course of treatment for the patient, right? But 
let's talk about what you focus on way before you're making the decision of, you know, whether we need medical intervention, surgical, whether it's rehabilitation, this horse is headed for, let's talk about what happens a long ways in the past. Um, and as a sports medicine practitioner, especially that's prevention. I mean, it's so, so important. And that's, that's really where the veterinary field is headed, where the human medical field is headed is I think we've, we've realized, um, that it's not just about medicine. It's about maintaining health. So what are you identifying and working together with riders to really focus on for a preventive strategy for these horses? Well, the overall health, obviously we've, we've already touched on sort of weight, metabolic function, things like that. When we know horses have certain types of problems that we're going to be dealing with, you know, you've heard me talk about this. It's not always about treatment, but about management and sure. management. Management is where prevention or maintenance kind of blend together a little bit in a lot of situations. Um, but we try to school people on the things that they can put into their horses that are good building blocks. Um, and obviously good nutrition is part of that, but you know, we utilize, you know, and I know that we're talking from the Platinum Performance Group, but I truly have settled on a lot of the Platinum products because I feel like they work for me in the situations where I need. And you all have them divided up into a lot of the different systems that are involved when it comes to trying to manage certain things. And an overall supplement that I really like to have horses on is Platinum Performance, just the basic formula because of the omega-3s and all the things that you put in that help maintain inflammation and just good building blocks to help. You know, if you don't put good stuff in, horses are not going to be able to maintain their bodies. You know, all the different functions that our bodies and our, our patients' bodies are trying to maintain and go through. If you don't give them the proper building blocks, then they're going to start to, to fail and not function properly and up to snuff. So, Part of prevention is just maintaining that kind of a thing, but specific things like, like gut function, you know, gastrointestinal issues are huge in the horse. A lot of them are, I feel stress related, obviously. And a lot of stress is discomfort and knowing that your horse is uncomfortable and dealing with making it comfortable are important. That doesn't mean, so I think a lot of the gastrointestinal ulceration issues that we see are related to, to the stress of pain, but that doesn't mean you don't treat the gut issue. You still have to maintain it. Even if it's not the primary cause of whatever's going on with the horse, you still have to maintain it. And, you know, again, I, I do love the platinum products because I don't want to have my horse on medicine all the time. I may, we are big ones for scoping and looking. I like to document, does it have ulcers in the stomach? Does it have ulcers in the duodenum? If they do, we like to treat them, but it's all about, I immediately also put them on maintenance problem, you know, programs that allow them to transition after we get through the medical portion of the treatment. And it's still about prevention. So, you know, what's going to keep that horse maintaining that gut function is you know, something that you know, if we know that horse is prone to getting stressed, obviously we try to keep it comfortable, but we also want to maintain it on something that's not a medicine. I'm a big one for using medicines when we need them. I want to be able to transition to something that's not medicine for the maintenance part. Absolutely. Um, there's a time and a place, you know, there's a time and a place. And I, I, 
could not agree with you more. I think that we are recognizing um, both as an equine veterinary community and also on the human side. You know, again, I keep bringing it up, but they're so closely related in so many ways, the horse and the human. Um, and we're seeing the gut microbiome and how, you know, it's been said so many times throughout history that all disease starts in the gut, right? But an immense opportunity for prevention starts in the gut as well. Um, and so I think that it's so, so wise to pay attention to that and realize that it impacts so many different systems within the horse. You know, when we think 70%, 80%, if not more of our immune system and our horse's immune system lives in the gut, um, that alone should tell you how important it really is. So it's um, it, on top of its ability to cause pain and discomfort when it's um, not in a state of, well, not when it's not in homeostasis. Um, so no, it's very, very important. Um, and that's where just maintaining health comes in, you know, um, like you said, those omega-3s and antioxidants, but those prebiotics and probiotics and postbiotics, um, the biotics are pretty important there. And we're seeing that more and more. Um, one quick thing too, Jesse, as you know, you know, there's an old adage of no foot, no horse. True. Good, good foot care is important, you know, in terms of trimming and shoeing and, if a horse has a particular problem that can be helped out biomechanically in a certain way, great. But what's the hoof made of? It's made of, you know, keratin and you can affect hoof growth with nutrition, obviously. And it's so important when your horse has bad feet to make sure that you're on proper nutrition for it. And you all have some great supplement. I remember when Platinum first started up and I was starting to, we gave, you all gave out a lot of free product in the beginning. And I remember giving it to my technicians and they started their own horses on it. And then a couple of them had foot issues and they were saying that the farriers were saying, what are you doing now? Because these feet are really growing, you know, much better foot. And so we know that we can help out that nutritionally as well and really paying attention to, to what's going on. And you're not going to affect what's already there. As you know, I mean, the hoof grows like a quarter of an inch, a quarter of an inch per month on a, an average basis you're going to affect that new growth. But if you don't start at some point, it's just going to keep going on forever. And it's really important. 100%. And it's a lesson in patience for horse owners too, because as you mentioned, it's not a fast process. It takes what, 10 months to regrow a hoof. Um, and so it's, it's a long process, but really being in there for the long haul and knowing the decisions that you make along the road that may seem small to you, you know, namely that nutrition for the hoof. Um, actually is going to make a big difference in the end, hopefully. So it's um, definitely important. Couldn't agree more. Um, and Dr. Williams, I want to, you know, as we start to kind of wind down, which I could sit here and talk to you all day, but, you know, I, I want to talk about the people, you know, because again, these horses can't talk to us and it's the people that surround them that are the ones that really are going to influence if they're meeting their genetic potential as performers or not. Um, and you know, in, in your world, you refer to it as the care team. And I've heard Dr. Benoit talk about this so often of what they do at Pomponio and so on, um, is this care team. Everybody plays a role and by being synergistic and communicating with one another, you're in such a better position, um, such an advantage to making sure that those horses are doing well. Um, and you really drive that home. So you talk about the relationship and the communication between the veterinarian, the farrier, the trainer, the owner, the rider, the groom, the patient, um, and all of these people that come together to manage these horses. I mean, it seems so obvious, but why, why is that so important? 
Well, it is, I mean, you know what is communication or the lack thereof is usually the basis of most problems. And so we really communicate with our clients. Um, but I also really am insistent about communicating with referral veterinarians, farriers. I like to maintain good relationships with everybody. We all hear horror stories about the the headbutting between veterinarians and farriers. And I think it's really important to maintain that dialogue and make them realize you're not trying to tell them what to do. You, you know, I, I am a big one for, would you like me to do farrier balance radiographs? We do those a lot because it's important to know the position of everything in that hoof balance wise and, and not because you're trying to show what somebody did wrong, but because it allows the farrier to go Oh, wow. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, I can change this or that. And now I understand why this is going on and have the farrier be part of looking at the radiographs together. And I, you know, I really like to maintain those relationships and the, the referral veterinarians, you, you don't need to maintain that competitive thing of, oh, I can't talk to him because, you know, I, I can't stand the fact that they're in looking at that horse when I should be doing this or that. And you know, really try to maintain those relationships and make them understand you're not trying to take over an entire barn for them. You were asked to come in and be part of a team to help this patient and the team direct efforts toward that patient. And it, it can be difficult. I mean, what it's like, I mean, political things and people get their, their hackles up over this or that, but I really try to go leaps and bounds to maintain those relationships so that we do the best thing for the patient and the client in the long run as well uh, because of that. And, you know, it can be difficult too, because a lot of clients are very much hands off. You may have a client that owns a horse that may not even ride the horse. Sure. You know, we have a lot of people that, you know, a lot of situations there may be a rider that's not the owner, but I, you know, the, I, can really go back and say that the majority of problems that I've ever had with cases have been where somebody didn't know what was going on. And that's or life in general, on. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but and no, so I mean, try to, try to behave like life in general. Yeah. And farriers are so vitally important and, you know, are the ones a lot of the time that are, you know, working with the veterinarian to make a huge difference in these horses. So, um, so no, I love that point. And I think when everybody's pulling toward a common goal, um, as in most things, um, everything turns, turns out a little bit better. So absolutely. Um, so I want to, I want to switch gears for a minute and circle all the way back to kind of where we started in the beginning, which was your innate geekiness for the technology. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we established that there isn't, and will likely never be a replacement for your eyes and for your hands, but there have been some monumental advancements, right. And technology that are allowing veterinarians, you know, a leap ahead in terms of diagnostics, but also in, in really predicting then better preventing bigger problems using these small early indicators. Um, so let's talk about that technology for a minute. Just, you know, give us a glimpse if you would of some of the more recent tech advancements that you're excited about. Um, and namely one of them that I'm thinking that I've seen you, uh, really get into is the, the motion capture and the gate analysis, which is starting to come out. As, as we all know, there are several motion capture type systems that are out there and there are lots of different groups doing it. I happened to run into a group serendipitously at a farm here in Maryland that was a human motion analysis group. 
And they had a very unique system that really seemed to be kind of light years along in what they were doing. And the pro system that they have for people, for a human athlete or just humans in general, because they're starting to use it in geriatrics and in physical therapy, people coming back from injuries. Um, but it has 13 sensors that are worn all over the body, head, neck, chest, upper limbs, lower limbs, feet, hands. And so each sensor of those 13 sensors actually has three sensors in it, an accelerometer, a magnetometer, and a GPS. And the engineers in this company have been able to integrate that information to be able to analyze motion in every direction. And the thing on top of that that is really cool is if you plug in the weight and height and the mass of the animal or the person, you can actually extrapolate force plate data without force plates. And we're getting ready to do a study sometime this year, probably, that will document that in the horse. The, you know, the, the quadruped, we've got to go through a separate documentation. They've documented that for people. And so that's pretty amazing to be able to not have a biomechanical lab to get force plate data. And so this group, it's a small group. They have engineers that uh, are, you know, all through COVID, they were able to keep going because they were doing their own little thing and they're brilliant. And just the information that we may be able to glean, I think is going to be incredible. And uh, so we've done the 13 sensors on, I think 10 horses at this point in time to date since I saw you last. And it looks like that's going to be the real deal. Um, I also see this where we'll be able to evaluate motion once we waterproof the detectors. We'll be able to evaluate motion in an aqua tread. And because I rehabilitate a lot of my patients in an aqua tread facility, because I feel like it's one of the better tools for rehabilitating, it'll be really neat to to be able to actually prove how they're moving underwater, including the force plate type data, because we it's all been estimated that you know horses that are in aqua treading in water that's up to shoulder height, they're getting a decrease of 50% in the load on the limbs. So it'd be fun to be able to match that up with this kind of information. Um, and so that's been really exciting. And you know, as you know, I'm sort of an oh look at the butterflies kind of a person. I see something neat. I've got to see if it can give me more information. Um, yeah. There's another another group that we're working with right now that is doing dynamic shear wave elastography. So shear wave elastography is a tool that's still up in the air as to how much it will benefit us. It's a tool that gazes elasticity of tissue. And they've used it for breast tissue in people and for liver and those kinds of things. But then it took a dive into musculoskeletal. And they're, they've done Achilles tendons and, and lots of other things in people, but even there, they're not using it to make clinical decisions about the elasticity of tissue and it's maybe it's gauge in the healing process of a tendon or a ligament injury. So Megan Lusgarden, when she was at North Carolina, did an initial study and it looked like it may be a good tool, but we've been messing around with the static form and I'm still not satisfied with this is really giving me a good read on healing of tendon. But this group of engineers that is working with a dynamic shear wave elastography, they wear these devices while the pre people are walking or running and they're gauging the elasticity of that tissue in the moving human. Well, of course I wanna do it in horses. So 
we've already done one horse. I had a technician in my practice that went to veterinary school and I uh, called her up because she's close to where this group is. And she was all excited and she actually got her own horse to be the, the first horse that was tested. And so we'll see where that goes. It's very early in the stages, but it's just those kinds of things. If you don't try something out, you'll never know. And, you know, these things are look to be very promising. So why not check them out and see if they'll give us one more tool in that toolbox toward being able to figure things out that we need to know. That's how innovation happens, right? right. I mean, we all at, at Platinum, we all grew up under Dr. Doug Herthel and that's how so many different revolutionary things in veterinary medicine came about is with an idea and, you know, somebody who was bold enough to try it out. So I think that's, yeah, I think it's Doug amazing. Was, yeah. Doug was a fellow child. I just feel like, <laughs> you know, we have, you know, we have these, this childlike curiosity that I hope people never lose because that makes it what we do is ex it's exciting. And I feel like a little kid every day when I go to work, because there's just so many neat things to be able to to work with and work toward and try and, and I'm always trying to learn and evolve. And it's one of the greatest professions on this earth because we have so much freedom to do the things that we want to pursue in this, in this veterinary medicine. Well, you can feel it, Dr. Williams. I've had, you know, the immense pleasure of getting to be around you for so many years now, and you can feel it. You know, I think that curiosity and you always tell people, to never stop learning, you know, no matter where you are, what your position is, you can always learn something new. Um, and it's what keeps that fire in your belly about what you do. Um, and I love that about you. And I'm very, very thankful that we've gotten to cover some fascinating ground today. Um, but it's also practical and it's something that every one of us, uh, with horses, you know, as horse owners, whether those horses are competing or not, we're going to encounter this at some point or another. And I feel like veterinarians are going to be, I, I don't know, we'll say they're going to be thanking you after all of us are now hovering over their shoulders, thinking that we're, <laughs> we're experts in what they're doing next time, next time they get a physical exam on one of our horses. Um, but I really appreciate you joining me here today, my friend. I mean, what a treat. And on top of the fact that you have um, that you have a voice meant for the airwaves, uh, I didn't say a face for radio. <laughs> Definitely the voice, though. You you missed your calling for voicing over audiobooks, that's for sure. <laughs> but I'm I'm really glad you lent your voice to us today, and that you were able to uh, to come here and and educate us a little bit and let us know kind of this whole horse approach that you take to veterinary medicine, because obviously it yields some pretty impressive results. So thank you uh, for joining me here today. Well, Jesse, I want to thank you too, and thank you for, for those comments. But I also want to thank you and the Platinum Company because people out there, I, I don't know how much you know about how much Platinum puts behind educating veterinarians and sponsoring so many different things. They're really awesome. Uh, at AAP, they had the Platinum Summit, which was a really fascinating group of, of people giving talks on all kinds of different things. And, you know, you, you, you helped us out with the equine cervical group that we have going right now with, you know, where we're trying to dive into the horse's neck and there's just so much that you all do. And we really, as a profession, appreciate what you all do. Thank oh, you. Well, I mean, it, it truly and sincerely is our pleasure. We were, like I said, we were founded in a veterinary hospital. We, this is, this is our world. Um, and these are our people. 
Um, and we're all here for the horse. You know, it's this thing that unites us and it's a, it's a pretty special area to get to, to be in every day, you know, with people that we really admire and respect and care about. And we're lucky, you know, it's, it's, it's a happy thing coming to work when this is the world that you get to live in. So it's, it's very true. And, you know, for all of our listeners here joining us, um, Thank you for being here with us. You know, Dr. Williams and I can can sit and talk all day long, but it's uh, it's something where we hope you all were able to to glean something helpful from this conversation, and we certainly hope that you join us next time um, and that you enjoyed what you heard today uh, and Dr. Williams' brilliance as much as I did. So thank you all for joining us. Please come again next time. And until then, I'm Jesse Bengoa. Take care, all. Mm-hmm.